that's my cue. Hey, good to see you guys uh, tonight. It's been a long time since I've been here with, uh, with this group in Sanctuary, so it's kind of an honor. When Michael asked me uh, a few months ago to do this, um, I had no idea he, that he'd be leaving, so um, <laughs> it all makes sense to me now, but, um, but uh, he's dead to me now, so we're not going to talk about him anymore. And I think, I think Matt might have said this last week, but if anything bad happens, it's his fault, right? That's how it works. Mark, that's your first line of defense as, a, as the new leader, so so glad you're here. Um, it's fun for me to think about this group because uh, I actually uh, came to Menlo Church as a college student. I was involved in the college group, which we called Cornerstone at the time, and then uh, got involved in the young adults group, which we, they always have different names, right, uh, 20-something and so on. And then, and then when I be, started to, to uh, prepare for the ministry, follow my call, uh, Menlo had what we called Young Adults Fellowship, or YAF. We were really geeky back then, okay? <laughs> Super lame, but YAF. So Frank Vanderswan and I helped run the Young Adults Fellowship. Is that the most ironic thing in the world? Yeah. Do you guys know Frank? We got, get Frank in here to teach, okay? That's the next thing you got to do. Um, but uh, what was fun is, um, uh, I, so I went on a mission trip this, this uh, summer with a bunch, uh, few of you that were we're uh, on the Brazil trip. Any Brazil folks in here? That was like that. My team, all right. So glad for you. Uh, that was uh, really fun and so great to get to know uh, some of you guys and your heart for ministry and missions. It was really great. Um, and I was thinking back to when I was with, with YAF, Young Adults Fellowship, and uh, I also did a mission trip there. We used to go to Russia. And actually, uh, I married my wife, uh, Rachel, I've been married for almost 22 years, and um, we started our marriage on a young adults mission trip. Can you believe that? Am I the dumbest guy in the world to do that? But uh, we, uh, we led a trip to, to Russia, and, uh, and, and it was wonderful. I thought about how, how form, formative that time was in my life and in my marriage. And so, so many great memories, so many uh, great things have come uh, from this community right here, and it keeps going. God keeps being faithful. So my joy and ple pleasure to uh, preach for you. This Bible uh, series, you know, it's, um, I thought when Michael asked me, I thought it's a little bit of a geeky topic, but I'm going to do my best here because um, the Bible's a really important thing, and if we get that right, uh, then we'll, a lot of other things will fall into place. So I'm going to try not to make this like a lecture because you guys probably get plenty of those in your life uh, in different ways, uh, but but there is some important content here, and what we're talking about is this um, dichotomy that people sometimes notice between the way God is portrayed in the Old Testament versus the way God is portrayed in the New. And sometimes people will uh, take, a, take a look at that and think, well, they're actually two different gods. So uh, we're, gonna, we're just going to dive into that question a little bit, uh, but let me just offer a quick prayer as we get into this, okay? So, Lord, we thank you that all truth is your truth. 
that we can pray to you, that you'll illumine our hearts. And so we ask that you would do that tonight as we dive into this big question. Would you speak to us? Would you move us? Would you change us? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so here's just to frame this, uh, one, of the, one of the ways, and certainly in the secular world, uh, the atheist world, this, this question comes up. They don't have a real high view of the Old Testament God. Um, and one of the most famous quotes, I think we've, you've probably seen it before, Richard Dawkins has this quote um, that where he describes the God of the Old Testament as arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infant, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So he's not a fan. We can say that, right? Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's, how, that's how he understands the Old Testament God. Uh, he's not alone. Uh, another uh, agnostic named Charles Templeton, an older, from an older time, um, uh, also uh, notes that the God of the Old Testament is utterly unlike the God believed in by most practicing Christians. He's all too human, an all-too-human deity with human failings, weaknesses, and the passions of men, but on a grand scale, his justice is, by modern standards, outrageous. And his prejudices are deep-seated and inflexible. He is biased, querulous, I had to look that word up, uh, vindictive and jealous of his prerogatives. Um, so this image of an angry, mean, querulous, which means petulant, in case you didn't bring your thesaurus with you tonight, um, God, this idea of this God is held up against our images of God depicted in Jesus Christ, who seems to be all about love and grace. You know, a picture him with a lamb around his neck, right? You know, I mean, we got that, that great picture. Um, and it seems like there's two gods going. There's two uh, kinds of personalities happening here. Um, and that's what we want to look at tonight. Are there really two gods or not? Now, the first thing I want to say is I can understand how these folks can have a, a view of God that is maybe a little harsh. Um, and I understand, even as we, maybe you have read the Old Testament and had some head-scratching moments, why would God do that? Why would this kind of judgment be called for? And maybe as you've read the New Testament, you've also come across those passages where Jesus um, is gracious and loving and seems more connected. So I understand how people can come to this conclusion. Um, and here's a couple passages to highlight this. Uh, you know, God is depicted in, in many ways um, with a lot of, of judgment in the, uh, in the Old Testament and sometimes in terrible ways, uh, including wiping out whole people groups, sometimes in, includes children, and that is hard, that's a hard thing for us to understand. Um, and even in the Old Testament, uh, the prophets get grumpy it's not just God, but his, his, uh, the people who speak for God get grumpy. And here's a passage. It's a little bit, uh, it's funny and terrible all at the same time. But this is um, the great prophet Elisha, a uh, famous moment when um, some kids make fun of him. Maybe you've seen this passage before. But as somebody who is losing their hair, I have a unique uh, compassion for Elisha in this instance. But uh, Here's what it says. This is from 2 Kings. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel 
And as he was walking along the road, some boys came out of town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. And he turned around and gave them hugs. No, he didn't do that. He turned around, looked at them, called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And then he went on to Mount Carmel from there and returned to Samaria. It's sort of matter of fact. Okay, guys. Uh, now, that seems a little extreme and vengeful, I would say. Uh, and then, you know, we contrast that with the New Testament, right? That uh, we see Jesus uh, in Luke 18. There's a few different passages where, the, where we see this scene, um, but where people were bringing babies for Jesus, uh, and he puts his hands on them and blesses them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked him. But Jesus said, no, 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 let the children come and, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to them. Doesn't that sound a little nicer than a mauling bear? Do you agree? So there's lots of examples that we could bring up, um, but the point I want to make is there are real reasons why people uh, raise this question. And I'd want you to, I want you to just, you know, as we look at the Bible, we have to look at it openly and honestly and, and, and in, in, in as, much, uh, as much honesty as we can. Uh, there's some hard things in there, and we don't want to, you know, explain them away. We want to look at them seriously. So... There's a reason why this comes up, but the question is, are these really two different gods that are being depicted here? Now, a few initial thoughts just to, just to frame this, okay? One is, this actual question of the two-god thing is not new, okay? This question has been around since uh, the very beginning when the Bible was being put together, uh, and it was a fundamental challenge, this question, to the early church. So, so realize, you know, some things we think are these brand new questions we bring to the Bible actually have been around a long time. It's not new. Uh, and the, most, uh, the biggest proponent of, of this two-God theory was Marcion of Sinope. And he would read the passages, just like the ones that I, uh, I read, and he came to that conclusion that there must be two different gods. And the way he said it was, uh, there's this God of the Old Testament, the creator God, he called it, who was different from the good God that was the father of Jesus Christ. The creator God was inferior and previously ignorant of the good God, who was the creator of the physical world, the God of the Jews, and in opposition to the good God. So Marcion, this early church uh, guy who was, he was a mariner, and, uh, and he was wealthy, and he studied the Bible, uh, and he uh, was really interested in trying to influence people's understanding of what the Bible meant. But he, um, he went so far as to say it's not just that they're different. He said they're in opposition to each other. That is a big thing to say. Um, now, he called this misguided, inferior, creator, lesser God, he called it the demiurge, okay? Uh, the demiurge. You may have heard that, and uh, it became kind of a... Uh, a, a, a primary way of thinking about God in, um, uh, sorry, in, um, uh, lost the word, um, where'd it go? Sorry, keep going, Gnost Gnostic, thank you. The Demiurge is a, <laughs> is a term that you'll hear often in Gnostic theology, and you might have heard of Gnostic Gospels, we're not going to get too far into that. But the Demiurge is not to be confused 
if you happen to have seen Stranger Things recently with the Demigorgon, which is a whole nother thing, okay? So don't get those confused. The Demiurge is this word that, 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 uh, that uh, Marcion used for this lesser god, this creator god. Um, now, the interesting thing is this whole theory, this whole idea gained a following. People started to say, well, I think Marcion might be right. And we go, how did that happen? Well, at this time, the Bible wasn't actually the Bible. There was no Bible at this time as we know it. Instead, we had the Hebrew scriptures. We had some gospel accounts. We had some, Paul, some of Paul's letters that were floating around as separate documents. And so Marcion, he just took and created what he wanted. He created his own Bible, and his own Bible included none of the Old Testament. And then he took the New Testament, mostly Luke's gospel, and expunged all references to the Old Testament. And then he also had a lot of Paul's letters, which he also edited to exclude any notion of the Old Testament. So he had, this, he had his own Bible before the Bible was the Bible. And people started, you know, were convinced by his logic as he laid it out. Now, the thing about him is he kept and continued to shop his ideas around, and he kept trying to get the early church fathers to adopt his way of seeing the Bible, and they never did. And this is important. They continually said, no, this is not right. Your theory is wrong. They rejected his views, and, um, and to set the record straight, they, this kind of set the early church fathers into the development of what we now know as the Bible. They realized they had to actually put the Bible together to refute some of Marcion's views. So in a weird way, God used Marcion's uh, heresy in order to get our, the Bible that we know. So the point of this all, the reason I raise this is because when we think about this Old Testament, New Testament thing, we realize it goes way back we also need to realize that from the earliest days, it has been rejected by those who were the most knowledgeable, most closely connected to the history of Jesus at that time. So not only does this, does this concept this go way back, but the rejection of it also goes way back. Okay, and That's important when you want to think about, you know, do, what do I believe here? Those uh, who... Um, was given considerable thought, but those who were closest historically to the writing and canonizing of the Bible rejected this idea, okay? So just one, that's one important thought. Another important thought here is you always, 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 and I'm sure Matt said something about this last week, have to consider the context, right? The context of any verse, of any part of scripture. Um, the Bible was written within human history and in certain times and places, so the stories and events occur within cultural and philosophical contexts, okay? All that we know of God, everything we know of God has been revealed to us. Um, God reveals himself to us. That's how we know him. And there are many ways that that happens, but the primary way is in those words of Scripture. So wh the way he reveals himself is really important. Um, and one of the things we have to understand is that God doesn't do this all at once. It's not the full download. There's this idea um, of progressive revelation. And this mean, this, the, the idea here is that God's revelation of himself to human beings is a process, a progression. Over the centuries, men and women have encountered God in the biblical stories, and they've come increasingly 
to an increasingly deeper understanding of who God is and what God is like. Think about a sunrise that allows you to steadily see more and more of what a room contains. Uh, God's progressive revelation has permitted human beings to understand increasingly God's nature, will, and ways. It's the same truth that's there all along, but our perception gets enlarged. Are you following me? We begin to see more and more of who God is. Man's understanding of God through the Old Testament and into the New um, has happened over time. Okay? Now, it's important to understand that this does not mean that God has changed. Merely our understanding, okay? God's the same God, but we begin to see things differently. And this might help you to understand that um, as human beings understand more of who God is, we become increasingly responsible to God for how we respond to that revelation. Um, and as a parent, I can, I can imagine this because I have... Four kids, um, my youngest now is nine years old, my oldest is a senior in high school, but when my kids were young, um, they would sit at the table, uh, or usually in the high chair, and they thought it was really funny to take, you know, their goopy, nasty food, and just chuck it across the, you know, room. And this really, this really is not socially acceptable, maybe except in a fraternity, um, unless you're in fraternity <laughs> or sorority. Uh, but at that age, it was actually perfectly acceptable. It was fine, right? That was, he was learning how to use his arms, and it was fine, you know, nice arm on that kid. He threw the... But, you know, when he's nine, that's not good anymore. That's not okay, right? That, that is not allowable. That is not acceptable. So um, the, the, the behavior that's okay at one time is not okay at another time because the child simply doesn't know any better. But once they do... Once they do, then um, they're held accountable for that. Higher standards are imposed. I expect more out of my nine-year-old son than I do out of my kids when they were babies. So in the same way, God works within the realities of culture, and many cultural practices that are permitted in the Old Testament, polygamy is one of those that comes to mind real easily, are later regarded outside of God's will for his people. As God's people grow, so do his expectations. Does that make sense? It's just an important thing to understand. Um, now, a key caveat to this um, is that when we say and we talk about progressive revel revelation, we don't mean better or superior revelation. Okay? That's an important thing to understand. Um, and Tim Keller is really good on this. And if you've never read The Reason for God, you should. It's a great book and really helpful. But he suggests that people who have difficulty with certain texts, certain challenges in the Bible, need to examine their belief in the superiority of the historical moment, he calls it. The superiority of the historical moment. He writes, um, we must not universalize our time any more than we should universalize our culture. Think of the implication of the term regressive. To reject the Bible as regressive is to assume that you've now arrived at the ultimate historic moment from which all that is regressive and progressive can be discerned. That belief is surely as narrow and exclusive as the views in the Bible you regard as offensive. Okay? So I hope this makes sense. So sometimes we get to think that our understanding, where we are in our cultural moment, is the benchmark for which we examine and understand all other revelation that God has made. So God does not appear to us typically in a pillar of fire, right? 
or a pillar of cloud or um, in a burning bush. Um, we don't get his law on stone tablets written by his fingers. Any, I mean, maybe if you have, I mean, I don't want to, I mean, I suppose it could happen. I'm not opposed to that, but it just doesn't usually happen, right? Nobody followed a pillar of fire to a sanctuary tonight, right? <laughs> followed your GPS on your iPhone, right? Well, you know how to get here, so you didn't need that. But, but that's what we follow now, right? We follow our iPhones, you know. What would God do if God was revealing himself to us in our world and our time and our place? Maybe he'd use an iPhone. There's an, old, there's an old movie, sort of dumb movie with Steve Martin. It was called L.A. Story. And the whole premise of the movie was he began to see God speaking to him through those freeway signs, you know, those Caltrans ones. And it would just like have little notes to him. And he's like, it's God. You should go, you know, make up with your wife today or whatever. And he was like the only one that saw it. And he couldn't believe, but God was revealing himself to him in these freeway signs. So the point here is that we can easily think that our way of looking at the historical moments, past and present, um, is the right way. So it, just because God revealed himself in a certain way in the Old Testament doesn't mean we can judge it as inferior. Okay? Important to understand. I know a lot of caveats here, but the rest of it isn't going to matter a ton if you don't hold those things true. Okay, so with that in mind, I just want to take a, 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 the last bit here and look at two things. One is, let's see, because um, we have this bias, right, that the Old Testament is full of an angry, uh, judging, mean God, and that the New Testament is this loving, sweet Jesus, okay? Maybe there's a flip side to both of those. So let's take a look at the Old Testament and see if we can find a gracious and loving God there, Okay? Um, and the first place we want to look is Exodus. This is where God, again, reveals himself to Moses. And in Exodus, um, he talks about who he is, okay? As God passed in front of Moses, the one who saw God most directly in that time, uh, he proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin, that sounds pretty nice. That sounds good to me. I like that, God. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Okay? So there's punishment in there. There's judgment. But, but there's this compassionate and gracious God who is slow to judge, slow to get angry. And this whole description, remember, it starts with love and grace. It takes a while for God to get angry. And yes, God gets angry. Okay? We can't, you cannot look at the Old Testament and not see that. But here is the point of that. God hates sin. Okay? You have to understand God hates sin because of who God is. Sin is a problem. And if he didn't deal with sin, he wouldn't be God. And I would argue he wouldn't be loving. Uh, Neil Planiga, who's written a great book on sin, if you can believe there is such a thing as a great book on sin, um, he has this line where he says, God hates sin not just because it violates his law. He's not just angry because people don't do what he wants them to do. But more substantively, because it violates shalom. 
because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. See, God has this vision of the way things are meant to be, your life as it's meant to be, who you could be, and he sees the sin in our lives, wrecking it, destroying it, messing up what he wants to see in your life, and it's bad, and he hates it, and he judges it. He says, this is not good. How are things supposed to be? God showed us in the Garden of Eden that perfect companionship, perfect relationship with him. But I just want to argue, if God does not address this violation of shalom, how loving would he be? So we see judgment, but we see this God who's slow to anger, abounding in love. A couple other places in the Old Testament where we see this at work. Um, Hosea, this great story of God taking back his people in this allegory, this analogy of 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 a wife who has gone um, astray uh, and prostituted herself, literally. And so um, Hosea, who is the prophet God sends to go and live this out real time, um, has to go and take his wife back who has been uh, left him and prostituting herself. And Hosea has to go and bring her back and take her because that's how God felt. Um... And his people have run away. They've chased other gods. They're they're living apart from the one who made them. And yet, God gives this image of a man going out to go and rescue his wife, not to write her off, not to say forget her, not to let her suffer the consequences of her action, but to go and get her and bring her back and say, you're still my wife. See, that's the picture. And we see this. Even though this betrayal happens, this love of God, betrayal and love, and, and of course, anger and judgment in there as well. But here, it, here we see it in Hosea 11. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. My compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God, not a man the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. My compassion is aroused. My heart. She deserves punishment. But here's the place. God is anguished. He does not want to punish. His heart is to forgive and love and woo them back. Just like Hosea is called to do that with Gomer. Now, this is within the nation of Israel, these, this story. But here's the one where it's outside of Israel, to the pagans, the ones who aren't supposed to get any of the goodies here, okay? And this is the story of Jonah. And we know that Jonah is the one that does not want to go and preach the gospel to to Nineveh because he's afraid that God's going to be nice to them, right? He does not like who God is in this moment. He is angry because of God's gracious heart. And here it is in chapter 4, verse 2. He prayed to the Lord... Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Have we heard that before? Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah is so distraught by God's gracious and loving heart that he wants to end his life. That doesn't sound like a mean, vindictive God to me. 
So regarding the violent pagan nation of Assyria, Jonah's chief complaint is that God is too nice and forgiving. Is that the demiurge? Is that the angry, mean Old Testament God? See, this is the clue to who God is. You know, God must deal with sin because of who he is. But those warnings, all those warnings we see in the Old Testament are because God doesn't want to meteor out that judgment. That does not please him. He wants people to get it, to figure it out, to repent, to come back to him. Right? It's all because he wants to have them with him. He wants repentance and restoration. He wants his people back. And that's his heart. We see that in the Old Testament. Well, let's look at the New Testament. Let's see if, if Jesus is all about just fluff and, uh, and lollipops and uh, flowers um, or if there's, uh, there's some hard stuff in, in the uh, New Testament. Well, let's just start with the fact that um, a word count finds 108 verses related to judgment in the New Testament. And here's one from Jesus, uh, Matthew chapter 5 uh, in the famous... Uh, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Doesn't sound very fluffy to me. Uh, and if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be going into hell. Whew. That sounds kind of judgy to me. Sounds a little judgy, a little mean. Where's the cute sheep around his neck? I, I, I'm missing that, okay? Here's the truth. Jesus actually talks more about judgment than anyone else in the New Testament. But he's not the only one. I mean, Paul has uh, many passages that also relate this. Uh, and here's one um, from Romans. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when, the righteous, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality will get eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth, who follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. Okay, I, again, sounds judgy to me. Um, self-seeking rejects the truth. There's gonna be wrath and anger. Trouble and distress, that does not sound good. Now, there's one important aspect that you might have picked up here that's a little different between Old Testament and New Testament judgment. And that is um, the way it's portrayed uh, in terms of the way it's, it's acted out or lived out. And that is the Old Testament and the New Testament differ a little bit because the New Testament emphasizes this notion of final judgment this idea of heaven and hell, this idea of you know, being, having eternity away from God. You hear that language more in the, in the New Testament. And um, we'll hear that again uh, when Jesus uh, in John talks about the judge. The judge for, uh, there is a judge for, one, for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words, for the very words I've spoken will condemn them at the last day. At the last day is that reference to that moment at the end of time when the great judgment occurs, when Jesus comes back, the judge of the living and the dead, and 
Uh, we get a picture of that in Revelation in great detail, and there is some scary stuff in Revelation. So uh, read, don't read that at night, okay? Only read it in the daytime. It's my revel. Um, but this is a different kind of experience that you might see in the Old Testament, with the exception of the book of Daniel that gets into some of that end times kind of stuff. But generally speaking, Old Testament judgment doesn't deal with eschatological, okay? It's a big word. Eschatological just means the end times. It doesn't usually talk about lakes of fire, dissolving of the heavens and the earth, the falling of stars, eternal chains. That's not what you hear in the Old Testament. Instead, you get vivid pictures of people living with things like famine and plague and marauding armies and things like that. And that's because um, for them, that was what judgment felt like. That's what meant something to them. The, the idea of an afterlife wasn't as fully developed. That gets back to our progressive revelation. But when we understand that, as Jesus talks about that, then the idea of an afterlife and final judgment uh, makes more sense. And so we do see a difference there. We do see a difference. But regardless if we're talking about one kind of judgment or another, the point is here, God doesn't enjoy judging. God wants everyone to repent and avoid judgment. Um, he does not do this recreationally. It made me think of this far side cartoon. Um, think of hell, uh, you know, um, says, oh man, the coffee's cold. They thought of everything. God is not sitting around. How can I, how can I judge them more? How can I make it more miserable for them? That is not God's heart, okay? But he hates sin, and there are consequences to sin, and here's the good news. Here's the good news. He loved you so much, he paid those consequences. And that's the gospel. So maybe you've been struggling with this question. Um, and it's okay if you have. I mean, it's okay to wrestle with the Bible. Um, but keep in mind the message and the heart of Jesus is that, that you would know his love and that you would come to him and be with him. That is the heart of the gospel. And God's heart is that you would know him and love him. He does not want to judge, but he will deal with sin and he will take it on himself and pay the ultimate price. But he did it because he loves you. And that is good news. It's the same God, folks. The same God. The one that created you, one that created the earth, the one that gave his life for you on the cross. It's the same God. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we, uh, we thank you for this, this truth that you are the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as it says in Hebrews. The one that created the earth out of the very depths, also the one that created us and knit us together in our mother's womb. It's also the one that hung on the cross and rose from the dead whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And that is our hope, Lord. Help us to trust. Help us to believe. Help us to, to know you better. We're thankful for the Bible that we can wrestle with, that we can wrestle with you. But Lord, we're thankful for the truth that we know. Speak to our hearts, Lord. We love you and we pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Lord.
Amen.